Welcome to the Compassionate Carecast. I'm Keon Buzar-Jamari, a young computer engineer, producer, and entrepreneur. And here with me is Dr. Edward Deutscher, uh, who practiced microsurgery for about 35 years. And prior to uh, ophthalmology? Ophthalmology. Ophthalmology. Prior to ophthalmology, trained in internal medicine. uh, And he, I would consider him an expert in medical cannabis. Uh, he developed a practice devoted to the application of medical cannabis called Compassionate Care of Florida. <laughs> um, Compassionate Care of Florida, which leads us to the podcast. The podcast is called Compassionate Care Cast, uh, and we talk about the truisms about medical cannabis, uh, the accurate information, and myth-busting information about cannabis uh, in the news and in media, myth-busting any of that stuff, and just doing general education about the subject. So today we're talking about the realities of cannabis history. And the real reasons why marijuana became illegal uh, about a century ago. So, Dr. D, how did uh, marijuana become illegal? Uh, I recently heard that it was about propaganda against minorities or something like that. What can you, what can you tell us about that? Well, marijuana was legal around the world until about the 1930s. About 1930 was the year. And it was in use for thousands of years. We have documentation as far back as 12,000 years. There's some pottery that was dug up, and they have a picture of the leaf. The ancient Chinese were using it 5,000 years ago. The Mideasterners were using it. So, so there's a there's pottery with the cannabis leaf on it? It has a cannabis leaf on it. I just read about it. It's a, it's a fairly recent find. I can't pronounce the name of where they found it. But basically, primitive peoples were using it. They, I don't know if they were chewing it. You have to burn it to make it um, active. Yeah, You have to heat it up. But anyway, it was legal and everything was going well in pharmacies. A tincture of cannabis was available in the United States. They'd rub it on babies' teeth when they were um, teething. Really? They would drink it for GI problems, put it under the tongue for migraine headaches. Wow. And what happened was we had prohibition in this country and it was coming to an end. So prohibition of alcohol. Prohibition of alcohol. Oh. And it wasn't very well planned, and nobody wanted it, Mm -hmm. and alcohol was available everywhere, and what we got out of it was unintended consequence. We got Al Capone, among others, who used to live in St. Petersburg, Florida, near us. Wait, did he really? mm Mm-hmm. At the Don Cesar. That was his house, the hotel. Wow, I didn't realize that. That was his hotel. interesting. So what happened was the top cop against prohibition was a gentleman named Onslinger. One word, A-N-S-L-I-N-G-E-R. Onslinger. And he recognized, I read in 1930, more or less, that prohibition was coming to an end and he was going to lose his department and his funding and all his people. Mm -hmm. So he had to do something and he got together with Hearst, the publisher, Hearst, and DuPont. Hearst has a mansion, which you can visit as a museum up in North Carolina, in Asheville. Oh, really? That Hearst. Okay. And you wonder why Hearst and DuPont would team up with this guy Onslinger. And the reason was that they both had hundreds of thousands of acres of timber. Hearst had it for paper, for his publishing company. And DuPont wanted all of his synthetic products to hit the marketplace. And so cannabis is really from the hemp plant. 
And hemp grows very quickly. You, it's very hard to get high off hemp because it doesn't really have chemicals in it. Yeah. But they diverge. It's the same plant. Cannabis is a type of hemp. So they wanted to ban hemp for oh. financial reasons. Oh, oh wow. Wait, so th that's really interesting. So the, it had nothing to do with any sort of not, like medical not use not whatsoever. At all, but it gets better. Really? So Hearst wanted to ban this stuff mm -hmm. because he had hundreds of thousands of acres for his paper. And DuPont wanted to keep all the natural products of hemp off the market. Yeah. So they teamed up. And what they did was Anslinger needed basically a straw man. He needed to create an enemy now that alcohol was going away. So you have to put this in context. This was the 1930s. This was 1930, 31, those years. Okay. There was a lot of racism. There was a lot of prejudice. So they took advantage of it. And what they did was they said that Mexican men were crossing the border and they were using marijuana with an H and they were giving it to what they called in those days, excuse the phrase, colored people. Really? Colored men. And what they were doing was they were using this, losing their minds, and committing violent crimes against young white women. So, Among other things, they were forcing themselves or, and or they would drug them and take advantage and get them thinking in bad ways. Oh, my God. So these were completely baseless It was cases. baseless. It was created, and it was created as a means to an end. The end was financial and power and that oh type of same old story. Wow. So they exploited racism very well. Mm -hmm. They The movie Reefer Madness, which many yeah. people have seen and laughed at, mm -hmm. well, in context of the time, they really didn't laugh. They took it seriously. And these men, these gentlemen, were so effective that they started the prohibition against marijuana that spread around the world. And to just about every presidency up until modern times, yeah. even though the scientific evidence was very clear, and many of our presidents were advised, even by Congress, to just drop the prohibition on marijuana. Wow. And it's a, it's a shame because so many of the natural chemicals are helpful in humans and yeah. animals, by the way, pets, Re dogs. Wait, really? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. There's doggy CBD, one of the um, chemicals from marijuana, yeah. very readily available from veterinarians to help doggies who are getting chemotherapy, who are not really? eating well, lack of appetite, who have chronic pain. Oh, and wow. They, they have doggy biscuits. <laughs> doggy CBD biscuits. <laughs> I, I had no idea. Wait, really? Yes. Honestly, I'm not making that up. Wow, that's incredible. I'm wow. not that creative. I'm not making that up. <laughs> that's fair. Wow, that's really interesting. Because the uh, you, when you think of... Uh, that's the interesting thing about it is that um, we talked a little bit earlier about the early history of marijuana. And a lot of people think of it... Well, and cannabis. And people think that it is all for the kind of relaxing effect as well as some high that it would give you. But you you told me that it's also, it, it never really, like when it came to how Onslinger wanted to ban it, it had nothing to do with that that part of it. It had nothing to do with the mental ability. It had to do with its actual use in, um, in manufacturing. Well, when Onslinger wanted to ban it, you have to remember he had his agenda, which mm -hmm. was to maintain power, and he did that very well, by the way. He was the longest standing top cop in the country. Mm -hmm. And DuPont and Hearst, it was financial each for a different reason. Because you have to remember hemp grows very, very quickly. Hemp is the mother plant. And the strain of hemp that's not neuroactive, psychoactive, is mm -hmm. very strong. And it goes way back even to the time of all the European explorers in the 1400s, 1500s. 
Hemp was used to make their sails, their ropes, their clothing, insulation in their houses. Really? And, and so hemp is a very useful plant. And they were successful in even banning hemp, the, the strain of hemp, yeah. that doesn't have any of the chemicals that are useful in the body. So you're saying that the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria all were made of, their sails were their made of... Their sails were made of hemp. No way. And the biggest grower in those days, in the 1400s, were the Russians. Really? It, it was the Russians, and they were growing hemp. They had a monopoly. So one of the purposes of all the European countries mm-hmm. exploring, and as they said, finding countries, but I don't think the populations of the countries were really lost, but they found <laughs> them anyway. Yeah. They discovered them, even though they weren't lost. But one of the reasons, the main reason, was to find areas to grow hemp. They needed hemp. Really? so They coming... really needed hemp in those days. Well, so exploring was kind of... Not it was there was a reason to also find land, but on top of that, it was to find other places to escape the Russian monopoly of hemp. Well, the land was to grow hemp. Yeah, exactly. They wanted that's... to get more and more land to grow hemp and cut the Russians out. Wow, that's incredible. That's... Even wow. back then, that's really they wanted to cut the Russians out. That's an interesting part of like history, and I, though it might not be like the sole reason, that's really interesting that that was a, a big part it's of a it. It's a strong reason, and in our original colonies in yeah. Virginia, I read that farmers were required that 20% of their crops were hemp. It, it was required? It was required. Really? Or they would be fined. It was required. They needed it so badly. And I found copies handwritten by their own hands yeah. of Washington and Jefferson about how they were growing hemp. Part of their crops were hemps, were Re- hemp plants. Really? Mm-hmm. For Washington? And, wow. It was so useful. It was so universally useful in those days. Now, the psychoactive, the neuroactive part was found, well, at least to the Europeans. They didn't know about that part. Mm -hmm. And what they discovered was, now this was known to other people, but to them, they didn't know this, that if you grow the plants in a warm climate, you grow plants that are more, let's say they produce more chemicals, which are active in the body, cannabinoids active in the body. And when you grow it in cold places like Russia, it tends to be stronger. The fibers are stronger, but it produces very little uh, chemicals, oh. maybe a little bit of CBD, which really isn't a good CBD at all. Okay. So the English discovered they, they went charging into India, mm-hmm. and what they discovered was when they grew a lot of this stuff that the local people who were working with them would oftentimes just sit around and laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and this really surprised the That's Brits. They had no idea what was going on until Dr. O'Shaughnessy, who was actually an Irish doctor, figured yeah. it out. He did a lot of studying on it, and he brought it back to Great Britain, and Queen Victoria was using it for her menstrual cramps what? from Dr. O'Shaughnessy. Wait, so what you're telling me is that the the original uses... So we talked about how it was used for sales and other things like that, but the original uses were... A, like, there was no psycho active part of it well, at all. it depends where you went. If you okay. went into China 5,000 mm-hmm. years ago, there's written documentation of using it okay. in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Ancient Persia, there's written 3,000 years ago documentation all over the mid the Mideast. There's documentation, but the Europeans yeah. who were going all over the world looking for places to grow hemp had no idea that it's temperature-related when it's growing, whether or not it will be strong for sails and rope and insulation or whether it will produce chemicals called cannabinoids, which are useful in the body. Wow. I'd, so 
so it wasn't really found out by the Europeans until they saw natives using. Well, other people, let's say that other people knew it, just like other people weren't lost, mm-hmm. but the Europeans discovered other places, and one of them was India. Yeah. And what they discovered in India was that Indians were growing hemp for many reasons as uh, medicinal products, oh. but also they'd sit around and kind of smoke it and enjoy it. And have a good time, yeah. And they knew there that because it was a warm climate. Oh. And that's what they knew. They knew yeah. cannabis plants that produce chemicals as oh, opposed wow. to strain. So the Indian hemp was really not very useful to the Brits when they mm-hmm. got there because it wasn't strong. But Dr. O'Shaughnessy, which was a, apparently a very brilliant man, the Irish physician, saw the use for it. He learned from the Indians, brought it back to Great Britain, and Queen Victoria became quite the user when she had her menstrual cramps. If you read the history, I guess she had very severe menstrual cramps. Oh, wow. And they hadn't come over to the United States, to America yet, to discover aspirin, (laughs) which the Native Americans were using for probably thousands of years. So she didn't have aspirin, so she was using cannabis. Wow. That is, I I had absolutely no idea. That's, That's ridiculous. Well, not ridiculous. It's just ridiculous that, like, a lot of people, when a lot of people think of marijuana, especially since, like, it was around the 30s, you said, when that was becoming more and more, uh, like, banned. And well, that... 1930 is the year that keeps coming up when I read about it, okay. when Anslinger really became aware of the fact that if he didn't do something, he'd go from top cop to basically an empty department with no grants, no funding, and no employees. Oh, wow. But that's the thing, is that, like, you you never think of that as, you never think of, like, way back when as that was a part of their daily lives, was hemp and marijuana, like cannabis. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting because you, a lot of people uh, my age, around like the uh, younger generation, think that it was always like that. It was always, the marijuana was always something taboo in one way or another. Well, it's interesting because obviously I've been around longer than you have, yeah. and I can't remember, I'm not old enough, of course, to remember tincture of cannabis, I have photographs of it in bottles on the local pharmacy shelves. But I do remember something called paragoric, which was tincture of opium. It was very, very dilute. Very Opium, dilute. really? Tincture of uh, very dilute opium. And what it was used for was, for example, when babies were teething. Mom or grandma would put a little bit on her finger and rub it on the gums, and the baby would stop crying. Baby wouldn't get high. It wasn't strong enough. Interesting. But it was a local anesthetic. So it would numb mm-hmm. the gums for teething. Or irritable bowel, a lot of people suffer from that. One teaspoon, there's not enough to get anyone high or anything like that. But it's very good at relaxing the colon. When the colon is in spasm, it was used for headaches and things like that. And I remember when I first started uh, certain types of surgery, when you do certain types of surgery in the tear ducts, you're in danger of severe bleeding. There's some very serious arteries and it's a very tight spot when you're working in there and you can't clamp them. And if someone starts bleeding, it's very serious. So what we would do is make our incisions and then use sterile gauze soaked in very dilute tincture of opium. And we would pack the area. Really? Let it sit for a couple of minutes. And it was both a very strong anesthetic, but also it constricted to close down blood vessels and controlled bleeding. And one day we were doing a surgery and asked for some and uh, apparently the government had said, nope, you guys can't use this anymore. There was not enough in there. You could take the whole storeroom of bottles 
and try to distill it. There wasn't enough to get a granule out of it. Oh, wow. But for our purposes, it was great. And that's when I stopped doing those surgeries because I didn't want to be in a situation where there was potential bleeding without control. Oh, wow. So, so I just stopped doing that type of surgery, as did many people, because there, it became more of a risk for us. Huh. Well, that's interesting that, like, when it comes to that, like, op- when you think of immediately opium, you think that, oh, wow, that must be some sort of... Da- they're using it for a dangerous reason, but that seems... Like you said, there's barely enough to get anyone remotely high, and that it's more of a local anesthetic. That's incredible. I had no idea. Well, the first eyeball anesthetic for surgery... Yeah. Uh, Sigmund Freud is credited with it, but... There's some evidence that he may have either stolen the idea or at least someone else was working on it before him. But the first anesthetic for eyeball surgery was tincture of opium. And there were drops that would be put on the eye. It rendered the eye completely numb. And surgery could be performed without pain prior to that. I don't know if they gave you a cork or a strap of leather to bite on, but it was kind of like a leg coming off in the Civil War. It was like, okay, hold on, buddy, here we go. Mm-hmm. And opium changed the world of anesthesia. Wow. Dental surgery, it was used as a local anesthetic. It's very effective to control bleeding, like I mentioned, and mm-hmm. anesthesia. Well, honestly, that's actually a really good segue into um, kind of, if we can tr- switch gears into the fact that you're practice that you have for uh the before medical marijuana and kind of a referral for people that have very like good need for it in florida uh you see on a daily basis a lot of people that are suffering a lot and you see the benefits of medical marijuana and i'm curious if you've seen anything recently that kind of was incredible and uh, a marijuana miracle if if you if you will well i have to confess that what happened was I decided after close to, well, 35 years, mm-hmm. I had had enough of high-stress microsurgery, oh. and so I stopped doing that, and it was almost on a lark, <laughs> like a Cheech and Chong lark, that I started <laughs> researching medical marijuana, and much to my surprise, there's a tremendous amount of science, just not in the United States. A lot of the research was done in Israel, huh. because it was banned here. So the scientists couldn't get it, they couldn't work on it, they couldn't get grants, and no one wanted to be around, and no one wanted to go to jail for doing uh, research. But there's a lot of good science, and what I've developed now is a practice devoted to uh, really medical cannabis, but I have to say that I have not had one stoner, one person come in to try to get legal a marijuana card from the state of Florida most of the people I see are in their 50s on up, and I have already a few in the 80s, and they all have real disease. They have rheumatoid arthritis with severe pain. They have lupus with severe arthritis pain. Wow. Parkinson's disease with terrible tremors and very painful muscle cramps. They get very painful muscle spasms. Multiple sclerosis with very severe muscle spasms. Uh, let's see what else. I see... <laughs> Severe osteo, that's just regular old arthritis, which can be extremely painful as we get older. And it's not one person. I see people every day. And it really is kind of amazing to me mm-hmm. how it doesn't cure everything. It's a plant, yeah. just like aspirin's a plant. And digitalis, one of the first heart medications, came from a plant. And hmm. um, atropine, which we still use in the operating room, it comes from the original one, came from a plant. So it can do certain things, but what's amazing to me is how effective it is for 
those conditions I was mentioning, mm -hmm. and I've been reading that in Israel, it's almost part of their routine chemotherapy because it subdues nausea or reduces dramatically nausea in, from chemo and disease, increases appetite, reduces mm -hmm. inflammation, which is basically the gateway to pain, oh. whatever kind of pain, the tissues get inflamed and they hurt. And they use it routinely. They use it with Parkinson's routinely. And they're way ahead of us. Other countries are also starting to use it. Um, let's see, Australia's using it routinely. Holland, of course, is using it routinely. Indonesia, I read, I don't know if it's accurate. Really? The most populous Muslim country in the world. And I read one source, only one source, but they're using it there too. Because if you extract the chemicals, mm -hmm. basically THC and CBD, and you learn how to use, and we're all just learning now, but how to use the different ratios, yeah. the people don't get high. There's no high in, well, there can be if you take enough, I mm -hmm. guess, if you really want to. But the people don't get high. And if you use it with thought, and we try to really take a very thorough history and use thought and work with the people so they can, let's say, they learn how to adjust it themselves. They can take control of their symptoms. Mm -hmm. It's really the only medications I've seen where people themselves can safely adjust it once they learn how to use it. It's very effective. It wow. really is very, very effective. That's incredible. I mean, that's that's really interesting considering that uh, on... Every every time that I see you, every time that we talk, there's usually it, it turns into oh hey this happened I I met this person that's suffering so much from this and this and this and nothing worked for them and then all of a sudden we put them on this we tried it out and from what you've told me there's never yeah like you said there's never anyone that comes in and is just trying to score weed you know they're just trying to feel better and it seems to be the thing that's working for them which is really interesting that nothing else has really been doing that. Well, one of the things is in Florida, there is no weed. You can't smoke it. You can't have plant. You can't yeah. grow plant. So what we're, we never prescribe. It's mm -hmm. a very interesting situation. Basically, the regulation's a minefield. And oh. the administrator in our practice, she is an expert. She was a consultant for over 30 years on regulation. She's oh. an expert in Florida regulation and healthcare, federal regulation, and our DEA licenses are federal, and huh. it's illegal federally, so you never write a prescription using your DEA license. What we do is we go into a state registry. I always put in enough to explain why we're recommending what we are, huh. and I use the word recommend. I oh. always recommend a, a dosage of so-and-so or different ratios of THC and CBD. That goes in the state. Then the, once the people get their cards, the different dispensaries have access, limited access, to the state registry. They can read what I wrote. That's why I take oh, the wow. time to write what the condition is and why we're using what we are and addressing it. It helps them dispense it. Wow. Then they dispense it. So as a physician, I never prescribe. I just recommend, <laughs> and the state basically makes it available through licensed dispensaries that is that is a crazy roundabout way to have to go through it's like you're writing a post. it's wacky it's like you're writing a post on their facebook page and the, the dispensary has to read that and then be like okay well if he said so he's credible and i get it that's really wow it, it, it wacky is the only word i can use to <laughs> yeah, describe wow. it and i don't think i could survive for a day if <laughs> um the administrator Lori, wasn't in the practice with their expertise and a lot of doctors who are trying and believe in it and want to get involved 
and educate themselves really are having trouble surviving in practice because it's just a nightmare. Like I said, a minefield everywhere from just using the registry, which is a moving target. Every week or every two weeks, there are changes, but we're never notified. So we log onto the registry to enter data about a patient and it doesn't work. No way. Luckily, our administrator, Lori, keeps ahead of this and she's got phone friends now (laughs) in the state registry to ask them what's going on. But it changes constantly. It's a moving target and it's very difficult. So you need an expert in the practice. Otherwise, it's very difficult to practice. So she basically has a book club that is the regulations every week? She is, yeah, a constantly updated book club on the on the regulations that moving target goodness gracious i had no idea well that's mm-hmm. i mean uh, that, i had absolutely no idea it was so kind of wild west out mm-hmm. there when it comes to this especially in florida where it's still like the um the marijuana itself isn't legal in the entire state but just for medicinal uses it is uh regulated in a way that's really interesting. I had no idea. I often refer to it as the Wild West. <laughs> and when other doctors ask me, how's it going? And, and by the way, I've become a real referral center, and I am getting referrals now from two big hospital chains and from neurologists, primary care, family mm-hmm. practice. I'm getting a lot of referrals. But when they ask me about it, I describe it as the Wild West, not because there's no science, but because of the regulation. And there really is, when I started, I couldn't find anywhere, let's say, firm recommendations for starting doses. So I had to, on my own, work out how to recommend to people a starting range and how to increase it, how much time to wait if they had to increase the dose, the frequency, or the Mm -hmm. amount of, let's say, milligrams. And to this day, I still haven't found anything. And I've read over five, well, I've read the five major textbooks or recommended books, and everyone beats around the bush, which tells you that no one's really sure of himself or herself how to recommend this stuff. Um, I feel more comfortable and more confident. I'm, I'm still in the learning phase, even though I've been doing it for a while. Mm-hmm. But it's like no other medication I've ever used. And I've even found, for example, let's say I were to recommend to someone CBD, which is one of the ingredients. Yeah. I, I'm making these numbers up. Sure. 10 milligrams three times a day. And one person says, this is incredible. I just haven't felt this good for 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. The next person comes in, may come in with the same diagnosis, rheumatoid arthritis or something. Yeah. And that person may need as much as 100 or 200 milligrams a day oh, wow. in split doses. And I've learned, and I tell the people, the patients all the time, no value judgments here. We just increase to whatever we need, but mm-hmm. everyone's metabolism is different. And you see these mm-hmm. wide swings inter between the patients the, in regard to the doses that they need for the same effect. Wow. It's very interesting. That is interesting. Nothing, I've never seen anything like this in medicine. Wow. And especially, well, honestly, if anybody's going to um, try to find correct ratios and kind of a way to handle this whole thing, it, it definitely would be you. You're one of the most organized people I've ever seen, and especially with your 35 years of It's experience. organization, and I keep records, but what's interesting is it's organization, but you can't be rigid. You have to be totally flexible because it doesn't follow the same rules as traditional medicine. You know, you take a blood pressure pressure medicine, you prescribe this dose this many times a day. There's variation between people who can tolerate it, but Mm -hmm. it's not wide. You know, if you go above a certain dosage or frequency, you're going to get into more side effects than you are in Mm. terms of beneficial effects. 
But with the chemicals in cannabis, it doesn't work that way. Huh. It just doesn't work that way. It's it's different. It's very interesting. We use it in the body. We produce very similar chemicals, cannabinoids in our bodies, and we have a whole nervous system devoted to it. That's another podcast. Oh, yeah? About the endocannabinoid system. system. Wow. Well, on, on that note, I think we've covered a lot today. Uh, we talked a little bit about the history of uh, cannabis and kind of where it started and where it headed uh, in its uh, prohibition. And then we moved on to a lot of uh, interesting stuff about the regulation right now and kind of the state of things uh, right now in Florida and around the U.S. And so... Um, That'll do it for uh, from us uh, here at the Compassionate Carecast. Uh, for more information, please contact us at compassionatecarefla.com. Uh, all one word, compassionatecarefla.com is the website, or at info at compassionatecarefla.com. That's the email, com- info at compassionatecarefla. And make sure to follow us at Compassionate Care of Florida on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, this is Keon and Dr. D saying... Happy trails to you until we meet again. Perfect.